0: 27 to 43, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nito also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Ge- Geba and Asmebeth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went. Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's son with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zacher, son of Asaph, and his, rel- and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hananiah, with the musical instruments of David the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and followed, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana. And by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniam, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananai with trumpets. And Masai, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Jehoninan. <laughs> Malachi, Alam, and Ezer And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced For God had made them rejoice with great joy The women and the children also rejoiced And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good job. I think I told Bev that there wasn't going to be another long list of uh, hard-to-pronounce names. And then this morning she looked at the scriptures like, Chris, what do you do? So sorry about that. Um, necessary for our, our understanding of the passage, but still hard to pronounce. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that in this passage with lots of ancient names that are foreign on our tongue, Lord, that you are speaking through your word, that your word is inspired, that it was inspired when it was written, And Lord, as we understand its context and understand what you're trying to say through it, Lord, that it's inspired to us as well, that your Holy Spirit continues to inspire your word. So we thank you, Lord God, as we uh, study this message, Lord, that we can hear your word for us today, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a great word for us today. Something that is really important for us as we come here and uh, glorify your name. So we thank you, God. We give you all the praise and glory for your word We thank you for the chance to think about your word. And we give you blessings, Lord, and glorify you. You are great and worthy to be praised. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, in the midst of that long, again, list of hard-to-pronounce names, we see this progression continuing to happen in the life of the newly kind of safe city of Jerusalem. We see that... You know, we've talked over these past weeks about this rededication that the people of Jerusalem participated in. They, after the walls were completed, they sought to reform themselves as a society. They recovenanted themselves to uh, God's covenant, and we've been talking about that over the past weeks. And last week we talked about how they sought God's will as they sought to repopulate Jerusalem. But this week we see that after all of that was done they held this massive worship service. Just a massive service. I don't know if you got the scope of the service as the scripture is read because you really have to look at it and see what's really happening here. But basically what happened is hundreds of musicians were gathered from all over the area. Trumpeters and harp uh, players, harpists and lyre players and all all these other uh, musicians so many that they had to make a city outside the walls just for them. Hundreds of them gathered. And the, all of these singers, hundreds of singers gathered. Just imagine that, the scope of that. You know, uh, a couple years ago I went to this concert where they had this mass choir of 500 singers. And it would be kind of like that, where there's just this massive wall of sound and just massive amount of musicians playing. And basically what happened is these two groups split up one led by Nehemiah and one by Ezra, and they went around the city singing, playing instruments, singing psalms, praising God. and then they met at the temple, and then they, um, they gave sacrifices to God in the temple. And we can see this kind of overall kind of arching focus through the whole service. And we can see it um, in, in verse 43. We read in verse 43. That on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So as I was reading that, I hope you kind of got the theme because it's pretty clear. You can just see it as you read it on the screen. Rejoicing and joy. The word rejoice just means to have joy. And it's said in the other translation we read, gladness, which also in Hebrew means to rejoice and have joy. So there's this consistent theme going on. You know, in the midst of all the pomp and circumstance of their giant worship service, there's this theme, this undercurrent, which is joy. They had great joy. God had called them to rejoice because God had given them great joy. And that, when we think about what worship is, you know, when we come here each Sunday and we think about what are we supposed to be doing here? I sing some songs, I pray some prayers, I listen to a sermon, I go away. But there's this deeper undercurrent that has been present since the very, very first faithful people have prayed. And all throughout the scriptures. And that is that worship, the undercurrent of worship is joy. You can see it throughout the scriptures. It says in uh, Deuteronomy Rejoice in the Lord your God. In the Psalms, the psalmist says several times, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And Paul wrote in Philippians 4:4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So there's this undercurrent, even here today, that what is going on beneath all the songs, beneath all the prayers, beneath my preaching, beneath everything, is joy. It's like this deep well of joy that is right here, that we're called to kind of tap into. We're called to um, allow ourselves to experience and to receive. So that's kind of what's going on, kind of underneath all that we're doing. And that was what was happening in ancient Jerusalem. But the problem is, as you, I'm sure, ex- might be thinking right now, and I know I was thinking this week as I was preparing the sermon, is that we don't often experience joy, I don't know how many of you came in here just being like, I'm so joyful, I'm excited, woo! Let's praise the Lord. Got get my praise on, I'm ready to go. I had one. Okay. (laughs) One and only one. Because it's, I think for many of us, joy is not something that always comes naturally. You know, kind of like thinking about like a walnut. There's this hard shell. And often, like, our weeks produce this kind of hard shell in our life. You know, we are distracted because of the, the issues and problems that we face. We are, uh, have a hard time focusing because there's so many other things going on. And so the, the deeper fruit inside this walnut, we don't experience. But that's what happens in worship. In worship, we're called to come here and to praise God. And then what God does he kind of breaks that hard shell. And what's beneath it, then, is the fruit of joy. And that's what God is doing us, calling us and beckoning us when we come here to this place. He wants to lead us beyond the hard shell that we experience because we all have this hardness. The world hardens us. Our workplaces harden us. You know, um, even sometimes conflicts and struggles here, a church can harden us. And then we have a hard time worshiping it. we come here and we feel hardened. You know, we, we, we're called to praise God and it just nothing sinks in, nothing breaks through. But ultimately what, what God is doing with us and what we're called to participating in us is that this breakthrough of joy, that God might lead us to the fruit, to the, to the blessing in the midst of what we do in this day. And so that's also the challenge and the joy of, of this day. When we come to worship on Sunday, we're called to appreciate and celebrate joy. And when we think about joy, I mean, it might be hard to kind of connect with that, because joy is often seen as like this feeling. You know, something that we kind of like excitement, anticipation. But as we talked about before, joy in the scriptures is different. You know, in Greek, the word rejoice and joy share the same root word, and that's grace. So to be joyful is to appreciate grace. So that means no matter what happened this week, no matter how hardened you felt and how hardened your week made you, you have a reason to rejoice. You have a reason to be joyful. No matter if you don't feel it at all, you still can rejoice in the Lord because God has been good you. To you. If everything is dark, there's still a light. If everything is hard and dry, there's still a deeper source of nourishment that we're invited to partake in that deeper theme of worship. And this is something we, we need to work with. We need to work on on a daily basis because, as I just mentioned, we don't come to worship always naturally joyful. We come hardened. We've been hardened by our week. So, what we're challenged to do is to receive joy, to live out joy, and to practice joy in this place. And that can be hard, because when we don't feel joy, often we'll turn to blame. If you're not feeling joyful in this worship service, you might blame me. You go, well, yeah, that boring sermon, that's why I'm not joyful. Or you might blame the praise team, even though they're awesome and we're awesome, uh, leading us in joyful worship today. You might say, yeah, I didn't like that song. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. They weren't clapping their hands. They weren't raising their hands. You know, uh, not good enough. It could be the building. You go, yeah, the building's not aesthetically pleasing enough. Could be the leadership of the church. Ah, the leadership not creative enough. You know, it could be each other. You look around and go, ah, you're not passionate enough. You're not worshiping. You know, you're only raising your hand at half mass, not at full mass. You know, like, you know, it's it's not really, you're not really doing it. You're not really into it. But the challenge for us, and that's an aspect of hardness, by the way, that kind of blame of others is an aspect of a hardness that leads us away from joy and worship. So our challenge is not to look outward and blame, but to look upward at God and to focus our worship on God's goodness, His worthiness, His, His grace, and His faithfulness in our lives. And then to look inward and to Confess sin, to repent, and to return in joy. So, we're going to talk today about a few different responses we see that help us to kind of participate in a joyful worship that we see in this passage. This passage just so beautifully illustrates joyful worship. It really does. And it really has been used throughout the the millennia um, to kind of be an example of how to joyfully worship. So we're going to look today at a few aspects of joyful worship that we see in this passage, which is celebration, thanksgiving, and also response. So we see the first one at the very beginning of our passage. We read, At the dedication of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. Now, As we read this, we know that this is a special occasion, right? This is not what happens every day in Jerusalem. Every time they worship, they don't gather hundreds of musicians from the countryside and have this giant, massive, you know, spectacle of worship. But still we see this theme, which is to celebrate joyfully. Whether they had one singer or no singers or a hundred singers, the theme was still... To celebrate. You know, in a modern context, you know, we're not, we don't have harpists in this church. At least I don't think we do. Or any lyre players. Any lyre players? Nobody? Okay. But, you know, the modern context would be like cool in the Gang coming down the aisle going, Celebrate good times. Come on. That's kind of the, the theme, right? Celebration. Good times. God has done good things. He's been good to you. He's been good to me. That's the, the theme of worship. When we come in, you know, yeah, if we had any cool, like, uh, 70s uh, guitar players, maybe Joey can do that, actually, or Julian. You know, we can get our funk on as we come in and do some worship. That's the kind of feeling of worship that we get here, that we celebrate when we come to this place. And we celebrate because there's a reason to celebrate. We celebrate because there's good news that we're, we're celebrating each week. The people in in Jerusalem were celebrating because there was good news, because they remembered God's work in their past and in their present, and they had hope for God's work in their future. And we also have even the greater hope of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of their hope, we have each week. But still, like we talked about with joy, we often don't have that sense of celebration. And I don't think it's out of a lack of appreciation of God. I don't think we come here not like clapping hands and with the funk guitars and everything, you know, celebrate God's grace, come on. It's not that we don't appreciate God, because I think we do. I think in this room, most of us appreciate God's work. We come here not just out of a sense of obligation, but we want to worship. You know, we come here not because we just should, but because we want to. But still, we don't feel that celebrative. We don't feel like, you know, we want to just kind of let loose and worship him. It's still that sense of there's that hardness that leads us to reticence. And so what we're called to do, what cracks the shell, is when we come each week and we just remember what God has done. Each week when we remember who Jesus Christ is, and I can't get this one actually. (laughs) That's a hard one. Don't want to worship. Okay. But when we remember what God has done, when we begin to remember who Jesus is, remember who we are because of Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden we can loosen up. Then all of a sudden we can begin to love each other, actually, because we remember beyond ourselves the reason we have to celebrate. This week I was reminded of this when I I was reminded back to an Easter poem that I read on Easter probably five years ago. And this poem really reminds me always of what it means to celebrate. Not just at Easter, but all year long. I mean, every worship service that we have, whether it's Easter or coming close to Christmas, is kind of we a little Easter. That's what theologians kind of describe uh, Sunday worship as. It's like a little Easter that every week we celebrate the the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. So there's a sense every week that we are celebrating Easter, that Easter has come, that the advent of our God has ushered in a new reality, that we have seen through Easter Sunday and then through the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so Anne Weems, who wrote this uh, poem, she describes that, and I think it's challenging to me actually. She says, uh, "Let me get to it." Okay, I think on Easter morning we should throw confetti in church. No? What about a little fanfare, a deafening drum roll, a three-minute standing ovation? What? Have we had the drums beaten out of us that we in the celebrative community can't really get excited about God's aliveness, about God's love given to us unconditionally? Let's face it. We live as though we don't believe in Easter. We can rock a baby, We can weep for a dead man, but what can we do with a 33-year-old who won't let the story end? Easter scares us because we're the people who can't believe God gives us abundant life. We think we have to earn it. We want to pay our own way, but Easter says it's already been paid. Easter says no matter how prodigal, you can come home. So come to the Easter party. Let's celebrate the amazing grace that in Christ's resurrection we are still loved, even at our most outrageous. The Lord has given us the music. All we need to do is dance. Come to the Easter party. And that's what we celebrate each week. The Lord's given us the music. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live for us, to die for us, to give us new life. And so we come here, and it's time to celebrate that. Even if everything is going wrong in your life, even though if you want to lament, which is part of worship, still in the midst of lament, we celebrate. You know, you, you see this pattern in the Psalms that I've talked about before. The psalmist in, like, Psalm 22 might say, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then he goes through the whole lament of why the Lord has forsaken him. And then, halfway through, he'll go, but you're still faithful but you are still lord in the midst of the darkest night the psalmist could still celebrate god's aliveness god's presence god's hope in the midst of darkness and that's what we're called to do here cuz we're we're hardened when we come here all of us are i am and we're called to let those shells be cracked in us and again to celebrate to be reminded of the aliveness and goodness of god that loves us even at our, our most outrageous, Jesus Christ. And connected then with celebration is Thanksgiving in this passage. Now one question that, that I had after, as I'm writing this, and I thought that maybe some of you might have, is how can we celebrate when literally we can't celebrate? You know, I'm saying, hey, celebrate the Lord. Let's come and celebrate. How can we celebrate when we don't have anything to celebrate? When we literally can't, when, we're, when all that we see is worship is an obligation, when we can't get around the judgments and criticisms, when we're depressed or just can't see beyond the darkness, when we are frustrated or disappointed or just feel generally blah about our faith and everything around us, how can we celebrate? How can we do it? And we see the answer here, and the answer in our passage is just simply to give Thanks. In our passage, uh, it says that they celebrated joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving. So that was one of the main ways the Israelites celebrated. They celebrated by giving thanks. You may not celebrate by raising hands and dancing around. We don't really do that in this church too much. A little too self-conscious, I think. You may not celebrate by, you know, just being feeling the joy of the Lord in your heart. But we can celebrate by just giving thanks. Just simply by being thankful and grateful. And those two simple acts have this tremendous ability to give us new perspective and to change our attitudes. You know, because if we think about it, just like we've been talking about, when we look at each other and we look at ourselves, we often do so with hardness, right? Right? I look at my friends and I'm not always thinking about, man, I'm just so grateful for them and I love them so much. I usually think, ah, they did this to me. They're so frustrating. Oh, why did they do this? Why did this happen? Why don't they love me like I want them to love me? Why don't they care for me like I I think they should care for me? We have this hardness. Same thing with our families. You know, instead of every day going, oh, I'm so grateful for my children, so thankful for my wife or my husband, often we go, nope, they didn't do this. They didn't act in this way. They didn't do that. Same thing with our church, same thing with our workplaces, same thing with the city that we live in, same thing with our living situations, same thing with everything. And so when all of those things come together, they can just be this kind of overwhelming kind of weight of just problems that we have ahead of us. But our challenge in the midst of that is just simply to kind of break through and go, what's What's God, what does God have me to be thankful for in the midst of the hardness? What can I th- be thankful for in my family? What can I be thankful for in my job? Where is God working in my church? What is God doing in the midst of my friendships? How can I praise God in the midst of the city I live in? All these things are just small ways that we break that shell of hardness, and that takes work. It takes intention in our life. The Gottman Institute, which is a, uh, an institute that does a lot of work on encouragement and gratitude, and they do a lot of scientific research around this, they have kind of come up with this ratio that they say will save a marriage. They have these big like claims, this will save your marriage if you do this. They, they, they call it the 5 to 1 ratio. They say if you give five encouragements to every one criticism, that that will change your relationship with your friends. It will create a different work environment for you to work in. It will change your marriage. It will change the way that you relate to people in general. And I've talked to people about this in the past because I've used this as an example in the past. And when I talk to people about it, usually like, oh, that's great. That's a great idea. But it's not possible because usually our ratio is the opposite, right? We have a five to one ratio, but our five to one ratio is usually five criticisms to every one praise, right? So we say five things and then as an aside, oh, thanks for making dinner tonight, you know, or hey, thanks for for coming out with me. Even though you were late and even though you didn't do this and even though you didn't do that, but thanks for coming. So usually it's just the opposite, But the one thing they've done a lot of research on, the Gottman Institute, and they're kind of one of the leaders in this, um, is that they've seen that grateful people have less health problems. They have more uh, thriving marriages and relationships. They live longer than people who are less grateful. And they have this long list of other things. And I'm sure we can all kind of see why that is. Because if you're more grateful... You're usually uh, feeling a little bit better about people. Your, your frustration and anger towards people is a little more moderated. You're, you're more seeing the, the, the bright side of life rather than the dark side of life and all these things. But I think all that research, more than anything, just shows the way we are created. That we were created as people, as people made in the image of God, to be grateful I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that actually it's God's created intention that you praise something outside of yourself. God made you with this longing, with this God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And so when we are not grateful and we are not praising and not being thankful, we're actually missing part of who we are as people, we are losing kind of part of our created nature. And so one challenge I have is if this seems too hard to do it with people, you know, I encourage you to do this with God. Because worship is the place that we practice gratitude and thanksgiving. Notice in our passage, the people of Israel practice gratitude and thanksgiving in worship. They they sing songs of worship and thanksgiving. They thank God through their prayers. So this is the place we practice it. This is where you and I practice gratitude. So I encourage you on the Sabbath day, on Sunday, here in worship, or uh, for the rest of your day, try to think of five things just to praise God for. Before you ask God for one petition or one need, just thank God for five things. You know, I actually practice this this week because usually when I, when I say do something, I'll always practice it before <laughs> just to make sure, like, is that realistic? I don't know. And I actually practiced this this week a few days. And it was funny because when I first kind of started like, okay, God, I'm thankful for these five things. I was like, uh, one, uh, okay, I got one, um, two, okay, three, definitely got three. And I, I just couldn't think of like five. It was really kind of funny. Like I was like, well, I don't know. Do I have five things this week? But as I did, repeated that exercise, More than five came. I started praising God for everything that was happening around me. I started being more aware of the things I was grateful for. And that's our challenge as well, is when we start, remember, we got this hardness around us. We got this hardness to people. We got this hardness to ourselves at times. It's hard to go, God, what's good? What's good? You know, Paul says, you know, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is good, whatever is, is, uh, is worthy, think on these things. And that's the challenge, is just to go, God, what is good today? What was good today? Okay, I, I, I can't think of anything. There has to be something good today. Let me think about it until it happens. And so that's the encouragement, is like, in worship, as you go through this week, just think of five things That you're grateful for, for every one thing. Just think of five things. And that's a way that we eventually just allow God to soften us and to lead us to the core of worship, which is joy. And so we see that the third response so we've had the first response of celebration, the second response of thanksgiving, and the third response is really just of action that they were led, that joy led them to do something. It didn't just leave them in the pews. It led them to to act in some way, to not just sit and look and be kind of dour, but it led them to do something. And the first thing it led them to do is just simply to sing. We hear a lot of singing. We see a lot of singing in this passage. There's a lot of singing going on. And it's a very interesting thing to kind of note because we wonder, like, why do we sing in church? You know, I've had people ask me that who are new to church. And actually, when I first became a Christian, I also wondered that. like, why are we singing so much? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know these songs. Why Why do I need to sing them? Singing has always been a part of the faith. Just something good to know. It's not something that is kind of some modern invention. I mean, instruments come and go. Like, types of music come and go in the history of Christian worship over the last 2,000 years. But we see that one thing stays the same, is that people were singing. 2,000 years ago and before, they were singing psalms. You know, we've had a hymn movement over the last couple hundred of years, and now we're singing Hillsong, and and we've got uh, guitars and keyboards and things like that. But the common denominator is, people have been singing. Christianity is a singing faith and what does that mean if you don't feel like you can sing if you don't feel like you have a musical bone in your body and you know and we as a church can be kind of rhythmically challenged at times you know when we're we're, we're clapping we have like some of the hard times sometimes keeping on the beat and, and that's okay because you know what we don't see anything in here saying if you are a good singer sing but the psalmist actually says make a joyful noise to the lord not just make a joyful noise all you great singers and musicians. Make a joyful noise to the Lord even though your voice might you might feel like it sounds like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. Just make that noise joyfully. Just sing that out. Own that chalkboard singing and and sing it loud to the Lord. You know, if you feel like you don't have any rhythm, use the rhythm you have for the Lord. That's one way that we celebrate God's aliveness. Because it's a deeper language than just words. It's the language of emotion. And so God has always given us this emotional language in which to praise him. So that's the first way we see that we're called to respond. And the second way we see we're called to respond is we're called to purify or be purified when we come to worship. We read that when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now, this is something that doesn't happen in Christian worship. Basically, what the priests and the pastors did back then is they ritually washed everyone who would come in to worship. There was this idea that when you came in uh, back then, there was this idea that when you came into worship, you were unclean. You know, which makes sense. They were hardened. So they needed to wash off that uncleanliness and come into God's presence pure and holy. And we don't do that anymore, but still, the practice is important for us to think about. Because often, we don't have a lot of care when we come into this place. You know, we're, we're doing other stuff, we're hanging out, and then we just come in, we're like, okay, now we're worshiping, and then we go to lunch, and then we go here, and then we go there, and then we go there. But really, what happened in ancient Israel is there was intention when worship happened. People stopped what they were doing. They bowed, they prepared themselves for worship. And that's our challenge as well. When we come to worship is to prepare yourself. As you come to this place, you are meeting the holy God. You are spending time together in the, the community of saints, the body of Christ. We're called to prepare ourselves as we come here. Just to say a prayer. Say, God, show me what you'd like to show me. Help me to worship and celebrate you today. Confess sins. Repent Come to this place worthy. Often when we, we come, we are always kind of uh, hit by the call to worship. That's the first thing that we are hit by. And sometimes, this is why I ask you to come on time to worship, because the call to worship is an important part of worship. When we do that call to worship where it's usually a scripture, where it's called response, what's happening in that call to worship is we are saying, now we focus on God. We had, came from a week of distractions and struggles, of business and busyness, of focus on tons of other things. We've been hardened by our weeks, but now we are coming to simply focus on God. That's what the call to worship is each week, is just saying, Okay, stop. Prepare yourself. You're here to worship. That's why in worship I have asked before just to be aware of your cell phone usage. Because one thing that our phones do is they distract us, right? Social media never ends. It is always there. It's always open. But when we come here, we're just called to put that phone down. I know some of you take notes on your phone. That's great. You know, some of you are reading Scripture on your phone. That's also great. But I encourage you to limit any other usage on your phone during the hour of worship except to take notes and to look at Scripture. Because we are here to worship the Lord, we are here to focus. When we hear that call to worship, we say, We are here to focus on God. For an hour of our week, we are here just simply with the community of saints to focus on our Lord. So when we come to the sanctuary, when we come here, just hear that Spirit's call that the Spirit is saying, Focus on me, focus on the Son, focus on the Lord, focus. Stop. Be here with us. And ultimately, worship then leads us beyond this place outside. We see in this passage that the people in Jerusalem took offerings so that they could care for everybody outside Jerusalem. As I mentioned, there was this whole group of musicians and priests and Levites, hundreds of them, they were all camped outside the walls. And they needed to be cared for they needed food they needed you know all the they needed shelter they needed the basic needs of life and so the people inside jerusalem as a part of worship were called to give funds so that the people outside jerusalem could be cared for and that's also our our challenge in worship worship always leads us to god and then it leads us out the doors to serve god and so our challenge then is to worship not just here, but to worship out there. To celebrate God's worthiness, to celebrate his goodness, both here and then take that worship out in your family and in your relationships and in your workplace, in your schools. To take it out. Ralph Martin describes it this way. He says, Worship is a dramatic celebration of God in his supreme worth in such a manner that his worthiness becomes the norm and inspiration for human living. So that's the challenge, is that worship leads us outside to become the norm and inspiration of our living. And that's something that's always going to be a challenge for us because we're always going to be hardened. We're always going to be hardened by our weeks. We're always going to be distracted. We're always going to miss the point. We're going to be focused on other things. But again and again and again... God gently and blessedly just calls you back to joy. Just calls you back again to remember who you are. That you are beloved of God. To remember what God has done. That he has saved us from sin and death and the devil. To call us back to where God is leading us. To joy, to goodness, to celebration, to hope in the midst of the darkness and just be called again back to joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that in the midst of the hardness that we experience, Lord, we know we're hardened by just the the weeks that we go through. Distractions, challenges, we just it just hardens us. It's like a shell. We know, Lord, we're distracted by relationships and they harden us too. Frustrations, anger, unforgiveness, uh, just a daily grind with each other. We know we're, we're worn down at times by our school and by our work. We know all these things kind of put that little protective shell over us. And so when you come here, it's hard to worship you. It's hard to celebrate. It's hard to be joyful. But Lord God, as we come, help us to be thankful. Help us to remember. Help us to celebrate. Because we know that through that, you're, you're, you're breaking those shells. And we know we need to come back here each week, Lord, to have our shells broken again in the midst of the, the unconditionally loved community so that we can go out again and serve you and love you and then come back again and worship you. We thank you, Lord God, for the privilege to worship you, for the blessing it is. We thank you for the joy that comes in knowing that you are alive and with us. We give you all praise and glory for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship joyfully.